Good evening, everyone. It feels so good to be back. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Let's turn to the book of First Peter. I want to look with you tonight at a one verse, so that won't take very long. Probably about five minutes and we'll be done. Why do I get the feeling no one believes me? Well, the trouble with one verse is it's connected to other verses. You know, like the neck bones connected to the... You know how that goes. First Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> verse 7. First Peter 4, 7. Where the Lord says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the Word of God. We give thanks for the privilege we have to meet together this evening, to know each other, and to have fellowship together because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what He's done for us on the cross at Calvary, which we will never forget, the love that He has set upon us. We thank You for Him tonight. We thank you that he's saved us from our sins. We thank you that he's brought us into your great family for the love and fellowship we share with each other because of what he did for us at Calvary. And as his people here on earth, we look forward to seeing him, Father. And we pray that you would send him soon. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. Things do not continue Forever. Life does not go on forever. Opportunities do not continue to present themselves endlessly. Time has a beginning and an end. And we owe the, our correct <clears throat> concept of time to what the scriptures teach us. The oriental idea of time, uh, the Hindu idea of time, is a mystic idea of time that moves in a circle. Endless cycles and circles. Death. Uh, decomposition, rebirth, life, death, and they just roll around like this. You're on the wheel of karma. You're trying to work out samsara. You're trying to reach some point, and you just go round and round. And it's an endless, it's th- that's their concept of time, an endless, endless wheel of lives and deaths and opportunities. And you never know. There's no point A or point B. It's just the continual eternal present. The scriptures tell us that life has a beginning and it has an end. Tells us that this earth had a beginning and it will have an end. And we know it as if we study history, one thing we know is that kingdoms have a beginning and they have an end. But there is a prophecy in the Old Testament that tells us, and we'll go read that now in the book of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, a book where the prophet received by revelation from the Lord an understanding, a vision, an understanding of all the kingdoms, the major kingdoms of the world until the time when Christ would come. And in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, we have this wonderful promise. It says, in the days of these kings, the ones he's been talking about, and the, the vision of the the stature, the man that he saw composed of all different kinds of metals and then finally of clay and iron mixed together. And he comes to the end of that stature that represents all the human empires. And he says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms And it shall stand forever. There is a kingdom coming on this earth. Not a mystical kingdom. Not only a spiritual kingdom. Not an invisible kingdom. But a real and tangible, visible kingdom with a king ruling on this earth. But for him to come and do that, he has to bring an end to all these things that we know as life. On earth around us. The world as man has made it. The world as the devil has made it. What is the world? 
Mr. MacDonald taught us years ago the definition of the world. I've never forgotten it. The world is a system organized and headed by the devil, dedicated to the purpose of keeping men happy without God. A system, not the planet, not the geography. A system organized and headed by the devil, dedicated to the purpose of keeping men happy without God. But all these things are going to come to an end. I don't know how you see that, but I think it's good news. Of course, if this world is your pearl, if this world is your apple, if this world is your treasure, then you view with certain sadness and uh, certain desire not to believe it, don't you? The idea that life as we know it here on this earth might come to an end. But that's what the scriptures say. The end of all things is at hand. And before the end of all things is at hand, if things that are much more permanent than ourselves are going to come to an end, we have to think about our own lives, don't we? It's good to live this way, to keep short accounts and to remember, I have a short life. Even by the longest standards, life is short. Even by the greatest measure, what is there in life? The clock of life, the poet said, is wound but once. And no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. Now is the only time you own. Love, work, and with a will, faith place no faith in tomorrow. For then the clock may be still. Only wound once. And the scripture says, the end of all things is at hand. In the book of Ezekiel, it's not very far over. Ezekiel's the neighbor of Daniel in the Old Testament, and he was actually his neighbor in life. They lived at the same time. Both of them were exiled in the kingdom of Babylon. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 7, <clears throat> Ezekiel was told to prophesy. And maybe I should give you just a quick background about Ezekiel. Ezekiel and Daniel were there together in the kingdom. Daniel was uh, in the palace. He was a, an advisor and a counselor to the king. Ezekiel was with the captives out in the, the area where the refugees and the captives lived uh, by the river Chabar or Kabar, depending on which version of the Bible you have. And uh, Ezekiel is telling the captives, you're not going back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And all the people that are there are going to be either killed or taken into captivity. And at the same time that Ezekiel is saying this, the same time, Jeremiah, the prophet, who's his, his um, compatriot and his co-worker, although they're separated by many miles, Ezekiel is with the captives in Babylon telling the people they're not going back and the city is not going to stand the siege and it's going to fall And in the city of Jerusalem, inside the walls and under siege at some point, not at this point in the book of Ezekiel, but later on, under siege, Jeremiah is saying to the people, the army is not going away. And the city is going to fall and it's going to be destroyed and you need to repent and time is running out and you're not going to have many more opportunities. And what does he say in Ezekiel chapter 7? The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Also thou son of man, thus says the Lord unto the land of Israel, An end, an end is coming upon the four corners of the land. Now is the end come upon thee. So Jeremiah is saying it in the city. And Ezekiel is saying it to the people who are captives. It's strange, isn't it? Their city has already been invaded once. The, the armies, the pagan and heathen armies have come in and they've taken one of the kings of Judah. They've taken him captive. They've taken princes and young men from the city of Jerusalem. They've taken them all into captivity and, and a great multitude of people into captivity. And there they are in captivity and they still haven't repented of their sins. Some people just don't get it, do they? They just don't get it. And so now Ezekiel's warning them. The false prophets were standing up. And you know, marketing... It's a very old technique. Marketing is not very good in spiritual things. It might be okay for, uh, well, my brother sells windows and some of you sell insurance and 
different things. And marketing has its place in life, doesn't it? But not in spiritual things. The idea of marketing is, if you want to be a success, you find out what people want. What would people like to have? What, what are their needs or what are their perceived needs at any rate? See, and then you fashion a product and, and you present it in such a way as to appeal to and to, to meet these needs or to satisfy these needs, real or perceived as they may be. And then, of course, you people respond and you make money and you're in business. That's a real short course on marketing. It's a little deeper than that, but we don't have time to go into that tonight. Tell people, sell people what they want what they need, what they think they need. God says, tell them my word. Not what they perceive they need, but what God knows they need. And what you perceive you need may be completely different from what God says you need. There was an old brother, I think I told you this before, in a, in a church up in Canada, and every time he preached, he used to say, you must be born again. Remember that? And the young people would laugh and they said in every message he says it somewhere. He can't, he doesn't matter what he's preaching on that text, he always gets it in there. And they finally they ask him one night, brother, why do you do that? And he said, well, there's a, re- there's a reason for that. It's because you must be born again. <laughs> That's what you need. That's why I always say it. You don't need to be religious. You don't need to join a church. You need to be born again. That's the only way to have life, to have forgiveness of sins, and to be sure of a future in heaven. So he says, to, Ezekiel says to the people in captivity, and Jeremiah says to the people in the city, the end is coming. And they didn't believe him. And they didn't repent. They didn't turn back to God. And what happened? Time ran out. The walls of the city came down. The armies came in. The temple was burned. The city was razed and left flat. The people were killed or taken off into captivity. And that was the end of it. So by my way of looking at things, when God says in his word, the end is near, we ought to believe him. It's a, it's a dangerous thing and proven to be very harmful to disbelieve, to distrust the warnings that God gives in his word. The end of all things, not the end of the land of Israel, not the end of the city of Jerusalem, But the end of all things is at hand. People in this world think that life is going to go on pretty much forever. And we're going to keep evolving. And we're going to keep improving. And technology gets better. And we're getting rid of the diseases. And we're educating people. And their view of the world is that things are getting better. The scriptural view of the world is, as Paul said to Timothy in his epistle, in the last days... Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. Now, that's, it's terrible English, but it serves as an expression. You say they get, they're going to get worser and worser. <laughs> They'll wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The world is not getting better. People are just deceived about it. People have rethought the situation and they've named sin other things. And they call it by other terms and they look the other way and they ignore it and they explain it and they excuse it. But the scripture tells us, and as God measures this world that we live in, things are not getting better. They're getting worse. Oh, but for those of us who are saved, never mind, things are getting better. Because worse, the worse off the world is, the closer we are to being with the Lord. So we say, bring it on. (laughs) Let it happen. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Heaven is my home way beyond the blue. So bring it on. If all things have to come to an end, bring it on, we say. Because that's exactly what the Lord is telling us here in his word. In Daniel, he says that that life, the kingdoms, the culture, the society of this world, the system of this world, all these things are going to have to come to an end. A great stone cut without a hand is coming down and smash the kingdoms of the earth. It's going to come down from heaven, smash the kingdoms of the earth and grow into a great mountain and fill the earth. And by that, God uh, figuratively expressed the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus, to this earth, not to die on a cross, 
He already did that. He's talking about his coming to reign. To reign on this earth. To set up his kingdom. A kingdom that will never be destroyed. And it is a wonderful thing to belong to the kingdom and to the king. that will never be destroyed, isn't it? And we know that. And we believe it. And we find comfort in it. But sometimes as Christians, and I'm speaking mainly to Christians now. If you're not a Christian, if you've never been born again, or you're not sure, then you never find any comfort in these things that we read about the coming of the Lord and the end of the world and things being destroyed and, and the new kingdom being set up. You'll never, that'll always bother you. You won't like it. It'll always unsettle you because you're not ready to meet the king. You see, but for those of us, who, our hope is not in this world, but in the world to come. We're looking forward to it, see. But sometimes we forget. And Peter's writing to Christians. He's writing principally to believers. Now, why would you have to tell believers? Why would you have to remind believers? We read God's word. When we come to God's word, we come to it in faith. We're already disposed by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to believe, to trust the things that God's word says. But it is so easy for us to forget. As we live and work in this world, it's so easy for us to forget that this world is on a short fuse. It's soon to disappear. And because it hasn't happened in the last five minutes or in the last five years, our wicked heart is tempted to believe, like the people in Ezekiel's day, when they heard him prophesy this way, then other men stood up and said, those prophecies are not for now, but for a time in the distant future. A long time from now. We've got time to raise our children, and they'll get married, and we'll play with our grandchildren. And in some future generation, these things will come to pass, but surely not now. That's what they said. And Ezekiel quotes them, because God hears what people say, and he knows what they think. And he says the end is near. And Peter's reminding us the end of all things is at hand. This is a warning. And we want to think about this verse in two ways. Uh, the first half of it we're going to call the warning. And the second half of it we're going to call the advice. The warning is given to Christians. Lest Christians become tangled up in this world and begin to think and to feel and to live like everyone else in this world who has no hope in the future, and who have no future to hope in. Lest we be like that, we're warned. The end of all things is at hand. Hebrews 10, when they, they wrote to encourage and to teach the Hebrew believers in Hebrews 10, verse 37, they reminded them, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. And new New Testament believers lived in the constant hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, believers did not think that the coming of the Lord Jesus would be a way off in the future somewhere, someday, sometime. And I'm sure you read through the New Testament in vain, searching for a passage where someone prayed to the Lord, I want you to come, but wait until I get married. Wait until I have my first child. Wait until I get my next raise in my job. Wait until this. Wait until that. In the New Testament, they didn't want the Lord to tarry. They didn't want him to wait. They wanted him to come. That was the hope. But here's the warning. Because we who have the hope sometimes forget it. Sometimes we become entangled. Sometimes in the things of this life we lose sight of the coming of the Lord. And our lives become occupied with just the routine and mundane, maybe not bad things, maybe legitimate things, but just things that occupy our lives and take, take up all our time, all our energies, just like people around us who have no hope. We need to remember as believers, if we're not going to be entangled in this world, and if we're going to have enthusiasm and concern and love in our evangelism, if we're going to remember to 
to speak clearly to other people about the Lord. We need to have this clearly in front of us. This thing, this earth, this system that we're living on is going to collapse. Now, ask Mike, what do you do when a building is going to collapse? When a building is burning and going to collapse, what do you do? Where are you, Mike? There he is. You don't go in and start painting the walls. Now, what is he trying to say? Is he trying to tell me I shouldn't paint my house? No, I'm not trying to tell you you shouldn't paint your house. Don't read into any of this anything that I'm not saying. You spend all your time trying to improve something that's going to disappear. How much time do we spend on the kingdom? The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, he hasn't come. He hasn't set up his kingdom yet. Uh But we're already in it. We're already in it. Doesn't it say that in Colossians? When we're saved, it says he translated us or he moved us. From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. No true believer lives without a king. Oh, you had a king before you were saved. You had somebody that ruled your life. You might have thought you were your own boss, but you weren't. Ephesians 2 makes it clear. You were being ruled by the spirit of disobedience. The prince of this world. Colossians makes it clear. You were in the kingdom of darkness. And when a person becomes a believer, they come into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was growing up, they taught us a chorus. I don't know when the last time I was that I heard this chorus saying, With eternity's values in view, Lord, with eternity's values in view, may I live every day and each step of the way with eternity's values in view. I was just a teenager when I heard that, but it made an impression on me. It's been a long time since I was a teenager, (laughs) and I still remember those words, and I think about them. Am I living with eternity's values? Am I living like a person who believes that the future is not here in the things of this life? That there is something more important than this world? The end of all things is at hand. And what do you do when the end of all things is at hand? Well, first of all, you have to believe it, don't you? One man told me in Spain, he said, if I really believed that the end was coming and God was going to judge people, I'd run into the first church I could find. He didn't really believe it. That was his whole problem. He didn't really believe it. Of course, even if he ran into a church, that wouldn't solve his problem, would it? A lot of people have run into a church and all they've done is become church sinners. <laughs> You have to come to the feet of the Lord Jesus. So here's the warning. The end of all things is at hand. In 1 John, we're going to read on. We're going to belabor the point a little bit. You see how the apostles keep coming back to it and reminding and warning the Christians and instructing the Christians about the coming of the Lord. 1 John 2, 17, he says, And the world passeth away and the lust or the desire thereof, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, why is he telling them this here? Well, you have to go back a couple of verses to find out why he's telling them this. He's warning the Christians and he's teaching the Christians. He's instructing them about how to live the Christian life. And he says in verse 15, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away. The end of all things is at hand. The world passes away. And its lust, its desires, are the things that you might desire in it. And this is a particular time of year when most people are thinking about all the things they desire and making their list of the things they desire and the things they hope for and the things they want. And I wonder if salvation is on that list. I wonder if a deeper understanding of the scriptures and a closer walk with the Lord Jesus is on that list. I wonder if personal holiness is on that list. I wonder if greater effectiveness in prayer is on that list. I wonder if 
seeing someone else saved and brought into the family of God is on that list. Brothers and sisters, when we leave this old world that's passing away, the only thing that we can take into eternity with us is our knowledge of the Word of God that lives and abides forever and souls that were saved that belong to the Lord Jesus. Nothing else is going to make it out of this world. Nothing else. The world passes away and the the desires of it are all the things you might desire in it. These are all things that are going to pass away. And when you ladies go to a store to shop and you're buying groceries, you look at the box or the can or the package sometimes and you look for that date, right? It's good until... And if it's past that date, well, then you either don't get it or you take it to the manager and say, how about giving me 50% off on this or if you dare to eat it. But most of the times they go through the store, they're supposed to go through the inventory, aren't they, and take out the things that are already past that date. And then other people go with their grocery carts out on the street and go through the dumpsters and find those things and put them in their carts and take them home and eat them. Well, the Lord is telling us, you better check the date before you make your nest here in this world. You better check. Before you set your heart's desire on all the sparkling and twinkling things that are to be desired. And all these things that are attractive to the eye and appealing to the ear. All these things that the world dangles in front of Christians to get them off of the things that are really important. You better check. See how long those things are going to be around. Because the Bible says the end of all things is at hand. And the Bible says the world passes away and the lust thereof. And we come to Second Peter. Let's go back. Second Peter. Chapter 3. And verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. I think that's fairly clear, don't you? Let's see. Now, what words are difficult to understand in this verse? We come to the end here. The earth. Does anyone need a dictionary for that? The earth. And the works that are in it. So far, so good, right? says, shall be burned up. That's not a figurative expression of anything. That's not a figure of speech. It means burning up like, as in when the firemen go to a building that's burning. Burning up with fire. And he goes on to describe it. In verse 11 he says, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, burned up, dissolved. I think that makes it pretty clear, don't you? They're not going to be here anymore. They're not going to be here anymore. And if I spent all of my passion, all of my desire, all of my energy, all of my time, all of my resources on the things of this world, what am I going to have when that happens? Life is too short and eternity is too long for it all our energies and loves and hours to be wasted on things of such short duration. We live. We must live in this world. It's where the Lord has placed us. We appreciate the things He's given us. We try to be good stewards of them. We enjoy what He's given us. But we don't live for things. We have a greater purpose than simply to live, to eat, to drink, to be merry, to go to things that make us feel good, to enjoy life. Life is about something more than that. And he says here that we should be careful. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy manner of life and godliness? How ought we to live? If this is really true, and if you really believe it, and if I really believe it, then how should we live? Not what should we know. Not what should we think. There are many people in the world, in the evangelical world, who are experts on prophecy and who are fans of prophecy. It's their hobby, prophecy. Books on prophecy, movies on prophecy, charts on prophecy. I like prophecy myself. I'm not criticizing people who like prophecy. 
But I'm saying this. A true understanding and belief of the prophetic scriptures as we have them before us always leads us to a transformed behavior. It does. He says, see that all this is going to happen, what should we do? Let's go make a conference, a prophetic conference. He says, no, let's go live a holy life. That's what we should do. We should change the way we live. We should make an adjustment in our lifestyle if we really believe it. And I say, well, then do we? People in Spain say they believe in God. That's what they say. But the way they live their lives, they are practicing atheists or practicing agnostics. The way they live their day-to-day life gives no evidence at all that they believe in God, that they think He exists, that they trust in Him. They're not sure He exists. For all you can tell by the way they live, they're atheists or agnostics. They either don't believe in God or they're not sure one exists. And what about us? Are we professing evangelicals and practicing agnostics? Do we have truth compartmentalized so that we can say that intellectually we believe certain things and hold these things to be true? But over here in the area of practice in my personal life, the way I live and the way I behave, and this has nothing to do with this. And that's what we call in Spain playing with two decks of cards. Jugando con dos barajas. ¿Verdad? You can't do that. You can try it, but you can't succeed with God. You see, these warnings and these reminders that we have in 1 John and in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, these are things written to Christians. Christians, those of us who believe in the Lord, who love Him and, and who want Him to return, but we need to be reminded because we live in a world that is constantly distracting, attracting and distracting us, turning our thoughts our desires and our energies away from the things that are of eternal importance. And we live life, and maybe we're not doing things that are patently wrong, but we're not doing things that are of any eternal value either. And this is the problem. Because when the the world is burned up, when the earth is burned up, in verse 10, it says, the earth and... The works, all the art, all the culture, all the music, all the philosophy, all the movies, all the inventions, all the technology, all the architecture, everything in this world, all the works, the planet itself and everything that men have built and invented and erected and maintained, it's all going to go away. That doesn't mean I can't appreciate the genius of a man who can, in his mind, in his thoughts, he can conceive a building or a machine. That thing had to exist as a blueprint in his mind before they could ever make it. These complicated machines. All that existed in somebody's brain. Not in mine, that's for sure. I can even understand it when I can see it. But in here, it was all functioning. And we're amazed at what people can do, aren't we? doesn't mean we can't appreciate those things. But to live for that and to behave as if that was what life was all about and that that's all there was to life is to turn things that could be useful into idols, into an idolatrous philosophy that we live to make things and to enjoy things that help us to relax and be more creative so that we can make more things to enjoy so we can relax. And it just goes round and round. No. Life is about something else. And you can build and you can give all of your energies to those things. But if you're a believer, when you go home to heaven and you look back on the shores of this world and those sandcastles that you built are all destroyed by the waves of time and God's judgment and there's nothing left and the beach is smooth and you have nothing to show for your life. And you'll say... I wish, I wish I had something to give the Lord. I'm saved. He saved me. He forgave my sins. But I'm going to heaven with empty hands. I have nothing to give him. 
I forgot. I listened to the siren call of the world. I was distracted in my eyes, in my heart, in my ears, in my time, my hands. I just never seemed to find time to serve the Lord. I never seemed to find time to witness. I I couldn't find more than five or ten minutes to to read or pray. I got up in the mornings. I got out of the bed and I said, i got to be at work in 45 minutes and it's a 40-minute commute and I haven't had any coffee and... Let's see, I need to read. I don't have time for that. Where's the devotional calendar? I'll read the first line in the verse. And Lord bless me on my work today. And I'm out the door. (laughs) And not even that for some people. Some people say, well, I'll I'll catch on the flip side, Lord. And then they come home and they're too tired or something came up and they had to go and do it. And another day spent and they didn't read the word and they didn't pray. You see, that's what the world does. The world is adept at, uh, how can I say this, drawing out of us in legitimate pursuits all of our time and all of our energies. It entangles us in such a way that without us going out and, and selling drugs or, or living in a mafia or, or robbing banks or in immorality, <coughs> we're not doing any of those things. We're not doing anything illegal or illegitimate. We're just not doing anything eternal. And so the apostles warn and remind the Christians, don't love the world. And that the construction of the language there in 1 John is really this, stop loving the world. That's really closer to the sense, the the real sense of the Greek in that translation. Stop loving the world because he knows it's a problem that we have. And, of course, like any problem, the first step in solving it is to admit that you have it, isn't it? If you're in denial, I don't have this problem, you can't make any progress. The first thing you've got to do is face it. The world is attractive. And every one of us finds some way to be entangled. We find ourselves drawn into it. In some, it's a giant magnet. That draws us in. And he says, love not the world. It's a warning. The end of all things is at hand. And he's warning us about it. And in the context, coming back to our verse, in the context of this warning, we read in the verses before that, in, in verse um, 2, for example, 1 Peter 4, 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust or the desires of men. You see, your life is divided up as a Christian into the time before you were saved and the rest of the time. The time before you knew the Lord and trusted in Him and the rest of the time. And he says, For as much, verse 1, then, as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same eyes. Get this point of view. Get this frame of mind. Begin to think this way. This is an armament. This is a weapon. That the Christian needs in order to combat the desires of the flesh and, and all of the attraction of the world around us and its power. He says, you need to arm yourself. You're going into a conflict. Arm yourself with this mind. You've lived enough time in the desires of men, the desires of people who don't know the Lord. Now from now on, you live for the will of God, he says. That he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust or the desires of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our lives may suffice us, or is to say, is enough. It's enough to have lived and wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. He said that was enough. The time past of our life was enough to have done that. We've wasted enough time, he's saying. And that, my dear friends and brethren, is what the world is excellent at getting us to do. Waste precious time. They want to make us spend it all. The world can't take away your salvation. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved by grace through faith and nothing can touch that salvation. Because in order to undo salvation, first they'd have to go to heaven to the throne of God and unseat the Lord Jesus from that throne. 
that have to take his, our names off the palms of his hands. He's the high priest wearing the breastplate and, and those uh, shoulder boards that have all the precious stones on them where the names of the tribes of the children of Israel are written. And that's like God's way of saying, in heaven and glory, the Lord Jesus is carrying my names on the place of his affections, on his heart, on the breastplate. He's carrying those names. And on the place of his strength, his shoulders, he's carrying those names. To get my name out of heaven, first of all, you've got to go to heaven and erase it off the Lamb of God. It's a wonderful thing to know you're saved, isn't it? Well, if I could get saved over again, I would. It's such a, but you can only get saved once. It's a wonderful thing, I tell you, to be a Christian. It's a terrible, terrible thing to be lost. So the world can't touch our salvation. The devil can't touch salvation. It can't be erased. It doesn't depend upon us. It can't be lost because it's not by works. We didn't do it, and we don't maintain it. We're kept by the power of God, the Scripture says. So then what does the world do? Well, I'll tell you this. The world and the devil, they don't throw in the towel. They don't quit. That's what we do. We're quitters. We get discouraged. We whine. We give up. But the world doesn't. If it can't take away our salvation, then it'll work as hard as it can to ruin our testimony. It'll work as hard as it can to distract us and to take away all of our energy so we don't have any time for Christ. No time for God. No time for the Word of God. No time for anything of eternal value. Now, we're not going to go off and be wicked people, but we're just going to be lifeless lumps of Christianity. Frozen Christians who don't do anything. They just exist. They're in suspended animation until the Lord comes back. And there they are all hanging there in the, in the warehouse, in the meat warehouse, in cold storage. You don't have to worry about these. They're not a threat to anybody. We got them under control. This is what the world does. They ruin our testimony. They take up, they occupy all of our time and energies, our thoughts, our desires. Every waking moment you ever wake up in the morning, the first thing you think of is not the Lord, but all the things you got to do that day. Now, don't look at me that way. I'm not the only one that's done that. I thought we were going to be honest with one another. Come on. That's the way we are, isn't it? That's the way we are. And I have to stop and remember what a, an old brother, dear old brother, told me years ago. He said, Carl, when you wake up in the morning, the first job, your first duty as a Christian is to get your heart into a state of joy and thankfulness in the presence of the Lord for who he is and what he's done for you. He said, you have to start there. And if you don't start there, you start the day on the wrong foot. You see, this is the way the world and the flesh and the devil, and one of these days we're going to take all three of those up and study them. I think we're doing pretty good on the world tonight, though, actually, aren't we? We'll get to the other two later on, but that's what the world does. Isn't it a wonderful thing not to be tied to the world, not to be like those people in Psalm 17? It says in verse 14, Men of this world, men of the world whose portion is in this life only. Everything they've got is here on earth. Is there somebody here tonight that everything you have is here on earth? That's all you've got? I hope not. It would be a terrible thing to go off into eternity with nothing. With no place to go. No home. No family. No life. Talk about get a life. Nothing. But for those of us who are believers, God has given us all this. And he's reminding us in the scriptures tonight, all these things around us are going to disappear. He's reminding us to renew our love and devotion to him, to walk carefully in this world so that we are not distracted and, and our testimony is not sucked away and completely destroyed by all the things this world has to offer. Why is it that Christians can spend three hours watching a movie and only five minutes reading the scriptures? And we like it if we look at the, the video or the DVD and we look at it and say, oh boy, this is two and a half hours. That's great. 
Wouldn't it be great if we felt that way about being there? I've got two and a half hours. I could sit down and read the scriptures and pray. I can learn something about the Bible. I can take that into eternity. Do you think when we get to heaven we're going to be standing around up there on the streets of gold talking about the last movie we saw before we left earth? I mean, really. We're supposed to be pilgrims. We're called pilgrims. So we're hammering on the warning here, and we've used up practically all our time talking about the warning, but i still got to give you the advice. Because there's advice here, isn't there? Be ye therefore, and when you see therefore, it's reaching a conclusion or an application in light of what they just said. Because of this, or, or uh, remembering what we just talked about, this is what we should do. Since the end of all things is at hand, if tomorrow the stock market is going to crash, are you going to go out and buy stocks today? <laughs> Some people might say yes. They're the clever types. <laughs> well, the end of all things is at hand. I'm going to invest in something that's going to last forever. Amen. I'm going to invest in something that's going to last forever. He says, be sober and watch unto prayer, he says. What does it mean to be sober? Well, it doesn't just mean don't be drunk, sober up in that sense, although that enters into it, that we should be sober and not drunk. But it's talking about the word sober in the sense of serious, in the sense of prudent, in the sense of, of moderate, not given to excesses, to measure carefully what you do with your time, what you do with your life. To be level-headed about it, not to be capricious, impulsive, to think things through and do the right thing and do the best thing is to be sober-minded. It says be sober. Go over one chapter with me to chapter 5 and verse 8. He says it again, be sober, be vigilant. And here is not the world, but the devil he talks about. He says, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Be on the lookout. Because you have an adversary. An adversary who set up, as we saw when we talked about the world just now, who set up a system around us to trap us and to distract us. But he himself desires to devour us. If he could, he'd do away with us. The day you trusted Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not, you entered into a conflict. And you have a sworn enemy who hates the Lord Jesus and he hates everyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus. And if he can't undo your salvation and he can't, then he dedicates the rest of his life to trying to ruin and neutralize your testimony and your life. You're in a fight, dear believer. You're in a fight. You came into it. You didn't know it maybe the night you got saved, but you soon found out afterwards that everything was not going to be a bed of roses just because you trusted the Lord. Your relationship with the Lord is settled forever. That's wonderful. <laughs> we could wish it could be that way with people around us and the world around us, but it isn't. That's where the trouble really begins. As one man said, when you start taking the things of God seriously, the devil starts taking you seriously. He makes a move on you then. You have an adversary. And so he says, sober up. Be serious is what it means, the word sober. Be serious-minded. Life is not a joke. And you all know me. I have a sense of humor. But in spiritual things, that sense of humor is under control. In life, that sense of humor is under control. Because I'm not in the world to be a comedian. I'm not in the world to make people laugh. Life is not about laughing. And everything is not funny. There are things that are not funny, that are downright scary. And there are things that are sad. There are things that are just absolutely horrible. And we're supposed to be sober, serious-minded. We see it here in First Peter. In First Thessalonians, Paul says it to the people in Thessalonica. Let's look at that quickly. Just so you see how these different scriptures tie together the same thought. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 6. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as do others. That doesn't mean you're not supposed to go home and go to sleep tonight. Sleeping there is a sign of being spiritually careless. 
You're asleep at the switch. You don't have figured out what's going on around you. Things are slipping by you. You're asleep. He says, wake up. Let us watch and be sober. We don't live like people who, in Spain, they party all night and sleep all day. They go home at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, fall into the bed and sleep. Well, not all day because some of them have to be at school or work at 10 o'clock and they drag their aching carcass out of bed a half hour before they have to be wherever it is and stumble off to work. And they might as well be asleep for all the good they are at work. Christians don't live like that. We're not in this world to have a good time. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy Christianity. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy fellowship with one another. It doesn't mean we can't have a relaxing minute. It doesn't mean we're all supposed to go and paint our walls black and sit around in black sackcloth and stare at the floor. People use these caricatures of the things we're saying to try to discredit the message of the Scriptures. But even after they go and, and make a, uh, a comic ridicule of all these things with pictures like that, the, the Scripture still says be sober. It still says be a serious-minded person. Watch. Be on the lookout. Have your guard up and be sober. Be serious-minded. That's the only way you're going to get anything out of the Christian life. Titus 2 and verse 6, he gives the same advice to young men. <coughs> Titus 2, 6. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Serious-minded. It's good to learn that as a young person. doesn't mean you can't have a childhood. doesn't mean you can't have fun. doesn't mean you can't laugh at a joke. But it doesn't mean you can't be a jokester all the time. I've known some people we said when I was growing up, they didn't have a serious bone in their body. <laughs> everything was funny. They, they could always make some remark and twist everything that people said and find some, something comical in it. Nothing was serious. Mr. McDonald used to tell us when he was teaching us years ago, be careful as a Christian about an excess of humor because an excess of humor in the life of a Christian causes a leakage of spiritual power and effectiveness. And that was good advice because the scripture, it, do, it doesn't tell us that we can't see any humor in anything, but it does tell us that we're supposed to be sober-minded. Life is serious. The, the issues that we face are life and death and eternal issues. The world that we live in is going to be destroyed even though people don't believe it. There is an eternity to live for. And some people and even some people are going to go into eternity without any plans at all. And God has a plan for them. And other people are going to e into eternity trusting in the Lord but with their hands empty. Because they never got the idea about how important it was to use their life for something that matters in eternity. And what matters in eternity? Things of eternal value. The word of God which lives and abides forever. I'm always glad when I'm here on Sundays and I hear about the Bible memory class that you have. How you encourage each other to memorize scripture. I'm always glad to hear about Bible studies and prayer groups and anything that's helping people to understand the scriptures. Why would we want to tell people don't go to Bible studies and don't, don't memorize verses and don't get too involved? That's exactly what you need to do. But the scripture tells us. In Hebrews chapter 10, that as that day approaches, what should we do? Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see that day approaching. The further we go in history, the closer we get to that last point when these things are going to be fulfilled, when the end of all things will come, when that kingdom from heaven will come and be established on this earth, when we will go to heaven, when we will go to be with the Lord, when life as it is known here will come to end. The closer we come to that, the less value anything down here on this 
world has and the more we need to be with one another. It says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but it doesn't say just that in period. It says, exhorting one another and so much the more. It means and even more so. As you see the day approaching, do it even more. The closer you get to the end, the worse the world is. The more insistent and persistent the devil and powerful he is in his attacks. And the more we need one another. We need the encouragement of scriptures. We need the encouragement of Christian fellowship. We need to pray together. And that's what Peter says here, isn't it? He says, be sober and watch in prayer. We're watching. We're being vigilant. First of all, about the the dangers of so many things that can distract us in the world around us. We're, We're keeping an eye on that. We're watching. So that we're not drawn off into these things. We're watching our own heart. Are there any loves creeping in? Am I beginning to love the world or the things that are in the world? Are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, are those things under control in my heart? Am I watching? I suddenly discover that I slipped up and let this stuff creep in and begin to affect my character, my attitude, my behavior. Am I keeping watch? I have an enemy without, the adversary. I have an enemy within, the flesh, the old nature. And I have an enemy all around the world. I have to keep watch. He says, watch in prayer. What did the Lord tell the disciples when they went into Gethsemane to pray? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, he said. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Christian finds strength in prayer. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. The Christian finds communion with God in prayer. He finds encouragement and hope in prayer. And he knows the power of God in prayer. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should pray longer prayers. When he says we should be sober and watch in prayer, but it means we should pray more often. We should pray with greater intensity. We should pray in a more serious way, less casually. We should pray more spontaneously. We should pray more frequently. Watch in prayer. When things pop up in life, and I like this uh, about believers in this area. You come and you're talking about some problem that comes up. And one of the people will just say, let's just pray. Let's just commit that to the Lord right now. And they'll just stop right there and bow their heads and pray. What are they doing? They're watching in prayer. Watching in prayer. It's an attitude that you live in. To pray without ceasing is like when a person has a cough. They're not coughing uh, 24-7 constantly. But they have a cough. And every once in a while, uh, when the condition is right, it erupts and they cough. It's there. And when a person prays without ceasing, they live in an attitude of prayer. And whenever the occasion arises, they pray. That's their response to things as they come up. I need guidance. I need help from the Lord. I need wisdom. This, this surprise. I didn't know this was happening. Let's pray for this brother. Let's pray for this sister. Pray about this. Mr. McDonald says he even prays when he goes out to buy shoes. He says, I believe the Lord has an interest in, in helping me buy the right pair of shoes. Somebody said, oh, that's taken it to an extreme. And he said, oh, I don't know why the Lord cares about my feet. And he cares about my wallet. (laughs) The better care I take of that, the more I have to give to him. (laughs) We just bring the Lord by prayer into everyday life. And we live in that atmosphere of of fellowship with him, of, of consulting him and asking for his help and thanking him for things. Isn't it a wonderful thing? We tell people in the world that. That uh, being a Christian means seeing a beautiful sunset and knowing who to thank. But do we thank him? We just thank him for the simple pleasures of life and the good things that he gives us. That's prayer also. He says, have fervent love among yourselves, not love for the world. The end of all things is coming. Love the people you're going to be with for all eternity. Love them and tell them. And that's one of the things I love about this church. How you express love to each other. And I love you all for that. I really do.
When we love the brethren, we want to be with them, don't we? We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Nobody makes us. Somebody said that they were told that. They said, oh, but if you go there, those people make you go to church. You have to go on Sunday, and you have to go on Wednesday, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. Let me tell you right now, and I'm sure Brother Adel and Brother Bill and Brother Dean, everyone's in Mike, they're all going to be in agreement with me. If you don't want to come, you don't have to. Nobody is making anybody come. We come because we want to. Because we love each other. We need each other. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and but we're we're not doing that because we're afraid God is not going to like us or be mad at us if we don't go to church. We're not doing it for those reasons. We're doing it because we want to be here, because this is where we get fed. This is where we get encouraged. This is where we find strength. We enjoy being with the people that are in our family that we're going to be with forever. If we could figure out some way to not have to work, we'd be here all the time. <laughs> but we need to work. Work is good. Don't misunderstand me. The Lord said, let him who stole steal no more, but let him work with his hands that he may have to give to those in need. So work is good. But you know what I mean. And one day we will all be together in heaven, won't we? Have fervent love. You see your brother in need and you close your heart toward him. He says, how does the love of God dwell in you? It's practical love. Love that cares for the other. And my brother Ken and I, when we were growing up, we used to fight with each other. You know, boys do that. Teenage boys. Sometimes we fight with each other, didn't we? <laughs> he doesn't want to admit it, but it's true. I started some of the fights, too. It wasn't all his fault. <laughs> but let me tell you, if anybody came into the yard where we lived, where we were playing, and one of us saw a bunch of kids out there, somebody picking on one of our brothers, he came flying out of the house like we'd been shot out of a gun. And got right between our brother and whoever it was that was messing with him. Because we cared, even though we quarreled with each other sometimes. And that happens in the church, doesn't it? Sometimes we have little quarrels and misunderstandings with one another. It's too bad when that happens, because when the chips are down, we know we really love one another. And the Lord says that. He says, have fervent love. Because it's not just something that comes and goes like the fog that you have no control over. He says, have it. He exhorts us to think about it and to let it flow in us and to not let it get away. Have fervent love one for another. And he says, be holy in life. We had that in 1 Peter 3. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy manner of life and godliness? A person who is holy is like God. Be ye holy for I am holy. A person who is holy is pure because God is pure. Separated from sin because God is separated from sin and different because God is different. A person who lives a holy life lives like God wants him to. And who does that to perfection? Nobody but God. But that doesn't excuse us from our responsibility. For the Lord said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. It's the obligation of every Christian. Now, I'll just remind you, this old world that's passing away puts before our eyes and in our ears and in our minds every day hundreds and thousands of things that turn us away from the life of holiness and that stain us and that provoke feelings and thoughts and deeds and simply priorities in life that are not pleasing or useful to the Lord. That's what the world does. The Lord says for us to live as pilgrims, to live as a separated people, as a pure people. And he says to guard yourselves without stain from the world, without spot from the world. That's what the world's trying to do. Keep us from living a holy and godly life. And the Lord said, but you just remember, just remember this, the end of all things is at hand. The world is passing away. 
That's all on the short fuse and soon to be gone. With eternity's values in view, Lord, with eternity's values in view, let me live every day and each step of the way with eternity's values in view. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time that we could be together this evening, for the warning and the reminder that we all need so that we may think and value correctly the things of this world, think correctly about them, so that we can order our priorities as they should be, so that we can invest our lives in things that will matter in eternity. We thank you, Heavenly Father, not only for the hope of that day when all this down here will pass away and we'll be in the kingdom of our Lord. We thank you not only for that eternity in heaven with him and happiness, but also for the opportunities we have to live for him down here on this earth right now. That we might show people around us that our faith is a real faith and that we have a real hope and that in our heart of hearts, in that place inside of us where we decide what value things really have, we might be able to show them by our life that way down in there we have decided that eternity is worth more than life and that heaven is worth more than earth and that the Lord is worth more than the world. We pray that you would help us then to be your special people and to show you by the way that we live that we love you and that we are desiring for you to come and that our response that these things might be even as it is at the end of the book of Revelation, we might say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.